Hello, and welcome to the NaviCast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Burnaby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 161st episode of the Nauticast titled Spiderwebs, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 2, in which Tyrion Lannister really wishes he could quit Shay, but he can't. Just like the most recent Davos chapter we did, where Davos kept trying and failing to accomplish his task of killing Melisandre, this is the Tyrion chapter about him trying and failing to accomplish his task. It should be like Tririan, right? Like Trihardian, something like that? Trihard? <laughs> Pretty I much. This is know. the Tyrion Trihard story from now on. This episode of Solace is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbo, Troubleshooter of Systems, the Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Ward of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren, the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen, the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Ted Stent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Sharon, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow, Com- Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, and the Nauticast Non-Binary, Not an Army. Haldiver, the way for T-Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of, Mon- Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, the Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady, Mis- Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Hardies in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., future Matt S., well, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and patron of free-wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer, the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Sir Kel, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the prince who promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful romantic and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince, rotting on the council wall. Thank you to all of our small council, not a small council patrons. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Winsmith sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. 
Our question this week comes from Lady Ken of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine, a high lady patron, who asks, Do you guys think that George will ever have a character explicitly make the point that women shouldn't be barred from sitting the Iron Throne simply because of their sex? Just like in any patriarchal society, it seems the Westerosian nobility feels there is some natural defect in women that causes them to not be capable of ruling the realm in the whole. Too emotional, not smart enough, etc. All the while, never barring men from the Iron Throne simply because they're men, even though examples of the most calamitous leadership came from male monarchs. <laughs> and what do you think, Jeff? Do you think there's ever going to be a character in A Song of Ice and Fire who explicitly makes that point? Or do you think it's going to remain kind of in the subtext or just uh, kind of in the audience conclusion? I think, you know, I think that... that it's possible it could come out in, in the text itself, but I think that George is a good enough writer that it needs to come out in, in the subtext. And I think, you know, you, Lady Ken makes a really interesting point that like the worst monarchs have been men, which is absolutely correct. Eris the second, Aegon the fourth, Aegon the second, uh, all the other Aegons. Fucking Magor. Fucking Magor, right. How mm-hmm. can I forget Magor? Magor the Cruel. All these folks have been like terrible monarchs. Robert Baratheon, a really bad monarch. Joffrey, also the King of Westeros, a very bad monarch. Short-lived reign, though. I think that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> I think that those are those serve and stand in as subtext for it. But at the same time, like, I think that if you have a character stand up and say, "Ah, well, as we all know, now that we know." that women can rule just as good as men and men can rule just as badly as women and there's equality, There's you could be equally shitty or equally good, it doesn't matter. I'm not sure if that's the best type of writing. Now, at the same time, I do think that there's an interesting uh, example when we have Rhaenyra Targaryen, who was not a good ruler at all, but she became like more and more despotic as she was continually denied her rights to to the Iron Throne, which sounds nothing like a certain character in the current story of A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> and at the same time, you have that kind of bad ruler became more tyrannical and more despotic, but then you have a counterexample in that you have the rule of Alysanne. Alysanne, of course, was mm-hmm. the sister wife to Jaehaerys I. And, you know, Jaehaerys I gets a lot of praise of being the best monarch in Westeros, but really, when you look at it, it's clear that George is making the point that Alysanne was the one who was actually doing the good things in for most of Jaehaerys' reign. I mean, Jaehaerys was fine. He was fine. He was totally fine. But Alysanne was the one who was holding women's courts, was touring the country, was making new progresses, and was also standing up for the rights of her daughters to inherit the Iron Throne, as we learned from Fire and Blood Volume 1. So I think that works better than an explicit statement that women can rule just as good as men. I like to see that more in the subtext rather than in the text. But I admit, I could be wrong. Well, maybe. Not often. But I could potentially be wrong about this. What do you think, sir? I do think that George does make uh, blunt, explicit political statements in the series, but I think they're often complicated by who is making those statements. I think like the best example of that is when Jorah says in book one, look, uh, the common people of Westeros don't really care about who sits the Iron Throne. They're not pursuing a particular ideological argument. They're not you know, drawing from the Great Council of 101. They care most about the crops coming in. They care about their families being okay. And they want a ruler who is going to allow that to happen. And it just doesn't happen. They're, they're never left alone. They're always, you know, forced into the conflicts of the nobles. And I think that is George directly, I think passionately making a statement about how power works in this world. But look who's saying it. It's Jorah Mormont, the guy who <laughs> sold people into slavery. And I think... You see that crop up in the series that there are unambiguously good and bad causes, 
But the people who try to stick up for the good causes or try to take down the bad causes are just people. And they're going to be flawed too. And they're going to have their own blind spots. And they're going to take certain things too far. And that's not a, that's not, you know, saying, and that's why you should just leave slavery in place. And that's why gender inequality is fine. It's tough because there's, there's the two, there are two wolves inside me. There's the two conflicting <laughs> desires where, I, you know, you want to, you want to shake up the halls of power. And I think getting a, a diversity of viewpoints and backgrounds is one of the ways you shake up the halls of power and having more women in there and having people of different races in the halls of power, I do think can open a lot of things up. But there's also, I think, something corrosive about the nature of power itself. And hmm. there's a certain kind of selection bias, I think, in terms of the kind of people who want to be in charge of things. Hmm. So I think you end up in a situation with someone like Rhaenyra. Like, I think, you know, Rhaenyra being kept from the Iron Throne is bullshit. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's clearly being motivated, as Lady Ken says, by this belief that there's something inferior in women. But once Rhaenyra starts pursuing her rights and trying to make good on it, inevitably a lot of problems crop up and she starts getting worse and worse. And that transition from just to unjust is something that George is clearly very interested in. I think Thoros is, makes that explicit. Another one of those like direct explicit statements comes from Thoros in A Feast for Crows where he's talking to Brienne and says like, yeah, I remember justice. I remember when that's what we were about, but we're not anymore. And the war kind of did this to us. Hmm. And I think that's that's a lot... That's a lot of the essence of a lot of tragic stories is you have what seems like a worthwhile or at least justifiable end, but there's just, there's just no means of getting there. And there, there might not actually be such a thing as justice or there might not be such a thing as justice that human beings can attain. So thank you so much to Lady Ken for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, monthly bonus episodes, merch, access to the Nada Slack, mini-sodes that we record before each episode, and shout-outs at the start and end of every episode for our small council and high lady slash high lord patrons. Yeah, those names are so much fun. But enough about Patreon, which again, you can find at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF. When we last left Tyrion Lannister, he had had a lovely chat with his dad, in which Father Tywin told Tyrion about how proud he was of him. You won the Battle of the Blackwater after all, son. Well done. Let's find out how much everyone else loves Tyrion in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 2. The eunuch was humming tunelessly to himself as he came through the door, dressed in flowing robes of peach-colored silk and smelling of lemons. When he saw Tyrion seated by the hearth, he stopped and grew very still. <laughs> My Lord Tyrion came out in a squeak punctuated by a nervous giggle. So you do remember me, I had begun to wonder. Well, it's, we went from Jamie last week to Tyrion this week, so Lannister point of view to Lannister point of view. Happy family member to even happier family member, so to speak. Varys pretends to give a shit about Tyrion's health, but he's curious why Tyrion is here in Varys' chambers. As for that, Tyrion came here after Tywin summoned him. As for that, Tyrion came to Varys' chambers after Tywin summoned the eunuch in order to catch Varys off guard. The thing is that Tyrion had found extremely little in the chambers. There was only water in the flagon and a bed made of stone in a coffin-sized room. Anyways, is Tyrion mad maybe about Varys abandoning him after the Blackwater? It made me think of you as one of my family. Oh, it was not for want of love, my good lord. I have such a delicate disposition, and your scar is so dreadful to look upon. Varys gave an exaggerated shudder. Your poor nose. 
Tyrion rubs at his nose, or what's left of his nose, thinking that he should have one made of gold. Anyways, Pycelle, Tyrion hears, is being restored to the Grand Maester position. Indeed, but it's not Cersei's fault. It's Tywin's, or it's the fault of the Archmaesters in Old Town. They insisted that Pycelle get restored. Tyrion thinks that's foolishness and remarks that Maegar the Cruel executed three Grand Maesters. Yeah, and Aegon II fed Grand Maester Gadares to his dragon. Well, Tyrion doesn't have a dragon, yet, and thinks that maybe he should have dipped Pycelle in wildfire instead of a blaze. Nero much, Tyrion? Well, it would have been more in keeping with tradition, the eunuch tittered. Thankfully, thankfully, Wiser has prevailed, and the Conclave accepted the fact of Pycelle's dismissal and set about choosing his successor. After giving due consideration to Maester Turquin, the Cordwainer's son, and Maester Arik, the Hedge Knight's bastard, and thereby demonstrating to their own satisfaction that ability counts more than birth in their order, the Conclave was on the verge of sending us Maester Gorman, a Tyrell of Highgarden. When I told your Lord Father, he acted at once. The Conclave met in Old Town behind closed doors, Tyrion knew. Its deliberations were supposed to be a secret. So far as his little birds in the Citadel, too. I see. So my father decided to nip the rose before it bloomed. He had to chuckle, Pycelle is a toad. But better a Lancer toad than a Tyrell toad. No. Varus comments that Pysa was a friend of House Lannister. Anyways, Boros Blunt is also getting restored to his office in the Kingsguard. That seems like really bad news, but maybe not the most horrible news in the world. Boros Blunt hated Tyrion, but he probably hates Cersei as much, given that she stripped him of the White Cloak. Boris is still a coward, though, which Varys confirms, but he'll be loyal to Tywin, also which Varys confirms. That topic complete, Varys turns to a somewhat related topic, Sir Mandon Moore. Why is Bronn so interested in him? Tyrion knows that Varys probably knows a lot, but Tyrion carefully couches his comments back to Varys to say that Mandon was friendless. Indeed, some family in the Vale maybe, but no friends here in King's Landing. Even Barristan Selmy said he had nothing but duty as a companion, and Barristan didn't mean that as a compliment necessarily. Varys thinks that's weird given that this is what's required of a Kingsguard knight, and Mandon had died for the king's own blood, didn't he? Trying to murder one of the king's own blood, you mean? Tyrion wondered if Varys knew rather more than he was saying. Nothing he'd heard was new to him. Bronn had brought back much the same reports. Tyrion needed, to link, ne Tyrion needed a link to Cersei, some sign that Sir Mandon had been his sister's cat's ball. What we want is not what we always get, he reflected bitterly, which reminded him. It's not Sir Mandon who brings me here. Varys asked what Tyrion wants. He wants Shay. Um, okay, not smart, Tyrion. Your dad is going to hang her, remember? Why does Tyrion want her? Well, Tyrion wants to see her one last time before he sends her away. Ah, okay, Varys understands that rationale. Break up. How? Could you? Tyrion had, Tyrion had seen Shea only yesterday climbing the serpentine steps with a pail of water. He had watched as a young knight had offered to carry the heavy pail. The way she had touched his arm and smiled for him had tied Tyrion's guts into knots. They passed within inches of each other, him descending and her climbing so close that he could smell the fresh, clean scent of her hair. My lord, she said to him with a little curtsy, and he wanted to reach out and grab her and kiss her right there, but all he could do was nod stiffly and waddle on past. Tyrion's seen Shea a few times, but he hasn't been able to speak to her. He knows he's being watched. Varys says, yeah, absolutely you're being watched. And Tyrion asks who is watching him. Well, first of all, you got the Kettleblack brothers. This pisses Tyrion off, given how much money Tyrion paid them. Could they be bought back? Um, 
maybe, but Varus doesn't think this is likely. You see, Cersei's got another purse besides money. Her vagina. Seven hells, thought Tyrion. Are you suggesting that Cersei's fucking Osmond Kettleblack? Oh, dear me, no. That would be dreadfully dangerous, don't you think? No, no, no. The queen only hints, perhaps on the morrow or when the wedding's done. And then a smile, a whispered, a ribald jest, a breast brushing lightly against his sleeve as they pass. And yet it seems to serve. But, but what would a eunuch know of such things? The tip of Varus's tongue ran across his lower lip like a shy pink animal. If I could somehow push them beyond sly fondling, arrange for father to catch them a bed together. Tyrion fingered the scab on his nose. He did not see how it could be done, but perhaps some plan would come to him later. Are, are the Kettleblacks the only ones? Tyrion asked Varus. Oh, interesting. Tyrion wants Cersei caught in bed with Osmond Kettleblack by their dad, who likes to hang people. Obligatory, but Tyrion is good! Anyways, the Kettleblacks are not the only ones who don't like Tyrion. There's also Jano Slint's son, and Littlefinger, who will inform on Tyrion if he visits a brothel. And who does Tywin have spying on Tyrion? Varys. Everyone laughs, and even though Tyrion knows that he can't trust Varys, he does know that the eunuch would inform on Shay to Tywin already if he cared to. Anyways, Tyrion wants Varys to bring Shay to his chambers. That's not going to work, because Tyrion's chambers don't have tunnels that Varys' birds can get to. Then bring her somewhere else. But where? There is no safe place. There is, Tyrion grinned. Here, it's time to put that rock-hard bed of yours to better use, I think. The eunuch's mouth opened. Then he could go to Lolly's tires easily these days. She is great with child. I imagine she'll be safely asleep by moonrise. Tyrion hopped down from the chair. Moonrise, then. See that you lay in some wine and two clean cups. Varys bowed. It shall be as my lord commands. Tyrion finds the rest of the day dragging. He goes to the library to read some books like a fucking nerd. Who reads books these days? He reads a book about the Rhoynish Wars, but can't really imagine the elephants always seeing Shay. Later in the afternoon, he takes a long bath and has Pod trim his white, yellow, and black-haired beard. Tyrion knows the beard is kind of ugly, but it does cover up some of his face, which he thinks is even uglier, and I find that really actually kind of sad. When Tyrion is clean, he gets on his best Lannister clothes, save for his hands chain, which of course Tywin, his dad, had stolen. But then he remembers that he looks very conspicuous in all his nice Lannister crimsons and dresses into plainer clothes. It doesn't matter... Tyrion told himself as he waited for Moonrise. Whatever you wear, you're still a dwarf. You'll never be as tall as the knight on the steps, him with his long, straight legs and hard stomach and wide, manly shoulders. The moon was peeping over the castle wall when he told Patrick Payne that he was going to pay a call on Varys. Well, will you be long, my lord? The boy asked. Oh, I hope so. George and Dick jokes. Is there a pure narrative combination in A Song of Ice and Fire? I really don't think so. Tyrion knows he's not going to be unnoticed, so he walks about as if he's totally doing normal person things. He sees Sir Loras Tyrell guarding the drawbridge to Maker's Keep. He asks how old Loras is. Seventeen. Seventeen and beautiful and already a legend. Half the girls in the Seven Kings want to bed him and all the boys want to be him. PolitiFact rates that statement by Tyrion half true. Tyrion asks why Loras took the white cloak. Well, because Aemon took it at seventeen and Jaime was younger. That's not an answer, Tyrion says. Why did Loras take the cloak specifically? You see, Loras, you're going to be guarding the king's life, giving up lands and titles, marriages and children. Ah, well, Garland and Willis will carry the flame for House Tyrell. Loras doesn't have to get married or to breed. Well, it's not necessary, Tyrion said, but some find it pleasant. What of love? When the sun has set, no candle can replace it. 
Is that from a song? Tyrion cocked his head, smiling. Yes, you are 17. I see that now. It's kind of weird how I thought that line was from like a later Jamie chapter, but it actually comes really early in A Storm of Swords. Something to remember going forward. Loras thinks he's being mocked, but Tyrion comments that he wasn't making fun of Loras. You see, Tyrion was in love once. He thinks to the song that Tysha used to sing to him and tells Loras, good night. Next, Loras comes on to next Tyrion comes on to a dog fight, which he watches for a bit, commenting that when one dog tears out half the face of the other dog, that the mauled dog looks like Santa Clegane. Yet another Tyrion is good moment there. Tyrion climbs up the steps to Varys' chamber and opens the unlocked door. Varys, Tyrion slips inside. Are you there? A single candle lit the gloom, spicing the air with the scent of jasmine. My lord. A woman sidled into the light, plump, soft, matronly, with a round pink moon of a face and heavy dark curls. Tyrion recoiled. Is something amiss? She asked. Faris, Tyrion realized with annoyance. For one horrid moment, I thought you'd brought me lollies instead of Shay. Where is she? Here, my lord. She put her hands over his eyes from behind. Can you guess what I'm wearing? Nothing? Oh, you're so smart. She pouted, snatching her hands away. How did you know? Tyrion replies that he likes Shay and nothing, and Shay likes wearing nothing for Tyrion. That means Tyrion should be fucking her, right? Sure, but not before Varys leaves. And he's gone. Tyrion looks around and sees that Shay is telling the truth just before Shay kisses him, and they get down to sex very hard in a sex-type way. Tyrion climaxes quickly, and Shay calls Tyrion her giant of Lannister, which is a line I really hope never comes up again in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Tyrion did not move except to put his arms around her. It feels so good to hold her and to be held, he thought. How can something this sweet be a crime worth hanging her for? Shay, he said. Sweetling, this must be our last time together. The danger is too great. If my lord father should find you, I like your scar. Shay traced it with her finger. It makes you look very fierce and strong. Tyrion laughed. Very ugly, you mean? The lord will never be ugly in my eyes. She kissed the scab that covered the ragged stub of his nose. But, but, but that's not why Tyrion is here. He's worried about Tywin. Well, Shay's not. Hmm, about that. Anyways, can Shay have her jewels and silks back? Uh, maybe, maybe later. Oh, and can Shay stop taking care of lollies too? No, I mean, yes, maybe possibly. You just need to get out of King's Landing, Shay. But she doesn't want to go. Did I mention this entire? Did I mention that this entire conversation is occurring while Tyrion is still inside of Shay? I don't want to leave. You promised you'd move me into a manse again after the battle. Her cunt gave him a little squeeze and he started to stiffen again inside her. A Lannister always pays his debts, you said. Shay, gods be damned, stop that. Listen to me. You have to go away. The city's full of Tyrells now and I am closely watched. You don't understand the danger. Shay isn't really listening to Tyrion. Instead, she asks if she can go to the wedding feast. Lollys isn't coming. Even when Shay reassured her that she wouldn't get raped, but Lollies had been afraid, which made her stupid to Shay, which, whoa, Shay, you are really having these unsympathetic moments that I had totally forgotten about, and I'm totally noticing now during this reread of this book. Anyways, Simon reassures Shay that this would be a big S event. Wait, wait, wait. Shay spoke to Simon? Well, yeah, Shay had gotten Lady Tana to hire him, of course. He plays for the pregnant lollies, and it calms the baby kicking inside of lollies. There's going to be 77 courses of food, and pigeons will fly out of the pie when the crust is open. And those birds are totally going to shit on Tyrion, probably intentionally. Shay wants to know. Shay wants to go in her silks and velvets as a lady instead of a servant, but Tyrion knows that everyone is going to know that she's not a lady. Beyond that, Lady Tana will wonder how Lollys' bedmate has so many jewels. 
Anyways, if Shay can go to the wedding, she won't wear small clothes. And when Tyrion slips out to use the shitter, she'll sneak out after him so they can have some sex sex time. Or she could give him a blowy if he slipped out. Tyrion was soon ready again. This time he lasted much longer. When he finished, Shay crawled back up him and curled up naked under his arm. You'll let me come, won't you? <laughs> wait, wait. Is this a sex joke? From George R. R. Martin, even? Are you saying that Shay hasn't come yet? Damn, Tyrion. Selfish lover, just like Theon Greyjoy. Anyways, Tyrion groans that it's not... Anyways, Tyrion groans that it's not safe for Shay. And Shay gives the Tyrion, I'm fine, treatment. Gods be good, Tyrion thought wearily as he watched the candle burn down and begin to gutter. How could I let this happen again? After Tysha, am I as great a fool as my father thinks? Gladly would Tyrion have given her the promise she wanted, and gladly walked her back to his own bedchamber on his arm to let her dress in silks and velvets she loved so much. Had the choice been his, she could have sat beside him at Joffrey's wedding feast and danced with them all, and danced with all the bears she liked. But he could not see her hang. When the candle is burned out, Tyrion detaches from Shay and starts searching Varys's chamber for the secret chamber. Finally, Shay points out that the secret steps are under the bed. But the bed is made of solid stone, right? They just had sex on a rock. Yeah, but Varys pushes a lever and it floats up. Varys had claimed to Shay that it was magical. Of course he did. And Tyrion says, yeah, the magic is a counterweight spell. Anyways, now that the sex time is complete, Shay needs to head back before Lollys wakes up and calls for her. Tyrion says she should wait for Varys, and he will escort her back. He's probably definitely listening to this entire conversation anyways. I will, she promised. You you are my lion, aren't you? My giant of Lannister? I, I am. And you're... you're whore. She laid a finger on his lips. I, I know. I'd be your lady, but I never can. Elsewise, you take me to the feast. It, it doesn't matter. I, I, I like being a whore for you, Tyrion. Just keep me, my lion, and keep me safe. I shall, Tyrion promised. Fool, fool, the voice inside him screamed. Why did you say that? You came here to send her away. Instead, Tyrion kissed her once more. Tyrion walks, Tyrion's walk back is lonely and he finds Podrick asleep. He tells the boy to go get Bronn as he pours himself some wine. On his third cup, Podrick returns with Bronn, who complains about being dragged from Shataya's brothel. You see, Bronn's a knight now, and he gets the good brothels instead of the cheap ones. And he was in the middle of a three-way with Aliyaya and Marai when Podrick came to retrieve him. Tyrion is annoyed at Bronn having sex with Aliyaya, thinking how he'd never touched Aliyaya even though he wanted to. And besides, Bronn's a fucking goddamn peasant after all. Tyrion had tried to apologize to Aliyaya for all of the beatings that she received by sending her a silver chain and bracelets, but he knows he can't visit Shataya's or else Cersei and Tyrion would hear of it and hang Aliyaya. Anyways, on to business. There is a singer who calls himself Simon Silvertongue, Tyrion said wearily, pushing his guilt aside. He plays for Lady Tana's daughter sometimes. <laughs> what of him? Kill him, Tyrion might have said. But the man had done nothing but sing a few songs and fill Shay's sweet head with visions of doves and dancing bears. Find him, he said, he said instead. Find him before someone else does. And that is A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 2. Quite a moody chapter for Tyrion and one that reads as yet another road sign signaling trouble for Tyrion. What did you think, sir? Remember how in Clash of Kings, Tyrion was playing the Game of Thrones, giving orders, consolidating his power, celebrating by tumbling Shay into bed? Well, this chapter is the opposite of all that. In Storm of Swords, we step through the looking glass, from Tyrion's rise to power to his fall, and so none of his usual tricks work anymore. 
He can't get the information he wants, he can't do anything useful with the information he does have, and he can't even bring himself to send Shay away, the one goal he can accomplish. It's a sense of frustration I think you also feel with like uh, Sansa's attempts to escape King's Landing. George is kind of bringing these characters up against the limits of their power. This chapter is all about what Tyrion can't do. It feels like a maze, right, for all these characters that they can't get out of easily. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sansa's going to eventually get out. Tyrion is eventually even going to get out. But it really feels like it's a maze with lots and lots of traps. And if you step through the wrong door, you're going to get killed. Not a really fun maze. Not an escape room at all. And And I think the other thing is, you know, for this chapter specifically, a Lannister out of power is a terrible thing for, of course, the Lannister who is out of power. Because you're right about how powerful Tyrion felt as Hand of the King back in The Clash of Kings. He felt strong and tall, wielding power with people having to listen to him. When he sat atop the Iron Throne in a sixth chapter in A Clash of Kings, he loved that feeling of how he towered over everyone else. And that made the metaphor come to life for Tyrion. He felt strong and powerful there. But now that he's out of power, Tyrion does not feel that same size differential he feels small and powerless and even impotent not sexually necessarily but in terms of power definitely no one takes him seriously Tyrion can't even master his own will and break up with shay and of course it's not just shay who is treating him as powerless his former friends treat him with contempt like bron or pretend to care about him like varas Yes, Varus. This chapter begins with a very rare occurrence, someone getting the drop on Varus. He enters his quarters to find Tyrion waiting for him. I don't know about you, but up until this point when I was first reading the series, I never even thought about Varus having his own rooms. It makes sense, of course, he's got to sleep somewhere, but he's just so detached from daily life. There's nothing but the job. It's hard to imagine him, like, relaxing after a long day's work, kicking off his shoes, cracking open a beer... Everything's a performance with Varus, and because he's a non-POV character, arguably THE non-POV character, we never get intimate with him. And he likes it that way, so he's taken aback to find Tyrion waiting for him. We almost never see Varus nervous, but for a second we do, and there's something satisfying about that. It feels like Tyrion is back to his old self, after Tywin dressed him down. He's back to being the arch-mastermind who manipulated the small council, but that image slowly falls apart. Sure, he's infiltrated Varus's innermost sanctum, but he hasn't found any of the secret messages or hidden tunnels you might expect with a spymaster. Nor does Varus have treasures hidden away. He lives a Spartan life. Water instead of wine, and a bed that feels made of stone. It defies the stereotype of the corrupt court eunuch with lavish indulgences, something you see in Chinese stories and histories, as well as those from Europe and America. Varus might smell like lemons, he might mince and giggle at council in order to avoid threatening the highborn folks he serves, but he is deadly serious underneath. He's dedicated to his mission on an almost monastic level, and you can see that in how he lives. Yeah, the way he lives is very Spartan, as you said before, and he is really, really serious about everything, despite this kind of outward appearance of being this kind of goofy, jolly, no one take me seriously, Varus the Spider. What I would argue is that what he's doing in that kind of outward appearance is using his image as a eunuch to disorient people and throw them off balance so that they are going to dismiss him. It's kind of the same sort of strategy that Littlefinger uses in his interactions. In both Littlefinger and Varus's cases, the two use their quotation marks lowborn status as the means of showing these nobles that they're mere servants of their wills rather than power players themselves, which is what they are. But Littlefinger plays at being everyone's friend, as George R. R. Martin once said, and I continue to dispute. 
and this allows him to worm his way into the confidence of the high lords and ladies of the realm. And Littlefinger has learned skill sets of counting coppers and they're making dragons appear of thin air, as Tyrion will say in the next Tyrion chapter, and that makes him increasingly powerful as the series continues. Meanwhile, though, in somewhat contrast, Varys had learned skill sets on the Mummer's Troop and as a thief in Pentos, chops that are actively scorned or made illegal by the Highborn. And these guys are not necessarily lowborn at all. Var Littlefinger descends from minor nobility in the Fingers and the Veil, and he is also a right now one of the most powerful lords in name, anyways, of the realm. He's the Lord of Harrenhal. Varus, too, may not be some lowborn thief from Pentos. He may, in fact, be a secret descendant of a bastard branch and or offshoot branch of House Targaryen. But Varus is using this image as a eunuch and as this kind of overweight, plump person in order to disorient people in order to worm his way into their confidence. Because how can this guy possibly be a threat? Well, you need to only look at recent Westerosi history to see that Varus is very much a dangerous power player in his own rights. But... Speaking of other secret Targaryens, it's interesting how much Varys contrasts with the POV character with the POV character of this chapter, right? Of course, Tyrion, the other secret Targaryen in the room, <laughs> and yeah, in in that way, he's yeah, Varys is kind of the opposite of Tyrion, right? Because Tyrion is spending this chapter grasping at straws, unable to wield power despite his name, and unwilling with regards to Shay. The Battle of the Blackwater and its aftermath permanently changed the dynamic between Tyrion and Varys, who offers a non-apology for abandoning Tyrion. Oh, I'm sorry, my lord, that I didn't visit you. I was just, I was just so upset by all the blood. And Tyrion, in response, tosses out one of his classic sarcastic remarks. It made me think of you as one of my family. Why should Tyrion expect loyalty from Varys when his own blood seizes every opportunity to humiliate and isolate him? Tyrion assumes that Cersei was responsible for restoring Pycelle to the council, because his paranoia about Mandon Moore is leading him to blame everything on her. But in truth, Pycelle's return to the small council came out of some complicated political maneuvering. It's a case study in how power works in Westeros. First, the Citadel protested that only they could demote a Grand Maester. Tyrion doesn't have the authority to do that. Then they were brought up against the hard reality that the Crown has a monopoly on violence in the Red Keep. Their authority is basically whatever they say it is and can get away with. As Tyrion says, multiple Targaryen kings outright executed Grand Maesters who had displeased them. By comparison, he was gentle to Pycelle. As such, the smarter Archmaesters out there in Old Town realized they had to find another way to use their power. Send a replacement instead. I love Varus's description of their deliberations. First, they considered some lowborn maesters for the position, just to pat themselves on the back for it. They like thinking of themselves as egalitarian, devoted to the life of the mind, and isolated from the Game of Thrones. It's like what Elsie Mormont said about the Night's Watch. We're, we're like one house, one family up here, all of us serving the realm together. But we've already seen that the Watch has to play the game. How could they not when they depend on the Iron Throne for support? Same applies to the Citadel. Their interest lies not in lifting up the downtrodden, but answering Tyrion's challenge to their authority. So they prepared to send, as a replacement, Maester Gorman, who is a Tyrell from Highgarden. It's an unmistakable message to the Lannisters. You fuck with us, and we'll stack the council against you. <laughs> but Varys has spies in Old Town who told him what was up, he passed it along to Tywin, and Tywin responded in kind putting Pycelle back on the council before the maesters could make their move. For all that the Lannisters and Tyrells have formed one great house, as Kevon says, to take control of Westeros, they are still rivals for power. 
We saw that with Olena questioning Sansa about Joffrey. We'll see it again with Tywin arranging for Sansa to marry Tyrion instead of Willis Tyrell. The same logic of, let's act before the Tyrells can. Later in the series, Mace tries to make his uncle Garth master of coin. In the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons, the last chapter published officially in the series so far, Kevon thinks that the Tyrells are never satisfied, realizing, oh, this isn't just Cersei's paranoia. It's, it is genuinely difficult to integrate these two very ambitious families. There's, it's kind of a zero-sum game. It really is a zero-sum game for these folks. They're constantly making moves and counter moves against each other, even despite the fact that they're putting on show of how unified they are. If you remember back to the end of A Clash of Kings and that grand mm-hmm. ceremony that Tywin put on where he's welcoming the Tyrells in and there's this everything is so publicly displayed as being, oh, these two houses are coming together in so many different ways. Loras is going to the Kingsguard. Marjorie is getting betrothed to Joffrey. But it's all a show. Well, partially a show. Behind the scenes, the Lannisters and the Tyrells are vying for power and maneuvering against each other. The Tyrells made the first move in by inviting Sansa to dinner, a move that, even if Varys couldn't hear what was being said during it, was probably noticed by the Lannisters and by Varys. Now the Tyrells try to muscle by putting in one of their own as the Grand Maester. These moves and counter moves are going to continue with the Lannisters, next intercepting the Tyrell attempt to marry Sansa to Willis by marrying Sansa first to Tyrion. But the Tyrells aren't quite out for the count when it comes to power plays, at least in the Citadel itself. As we'll find out from Pate in A Feast for Crows, Archmaster Gorman assumes a further leadership position within the Citadel working under the old and probably dementia-suffering Archmaster Walgrave to evaluate Ravencraft. So the Trails lost this round politically to Tywin, but they're still making moves closer to home to shore up their support from the Maesters. And that may end up being the stronger long-term political moves for the Tyrells, as it allows the Tyrells to put their own people into play within the, within the Archmaesters by having a crony push through idiots like Lazy Leo. Of course, the Maesters are apolitical, not given to taking one side or the other, right? No, absolutely not. Recall how Barbary Dustin will later talk about how Maester Wallis, which is Lord Rickard Stark's Maester from Robert's Rebellion era, was a Hightower bastard. Barbary will theorize that it was Wallis' idea to do Southern ambitions given his lineage from the Hightowers. But here in the present, it's quite clear how political the maesters really continue to be. Who controls the teachers of the nobility and who has a seat on the small council are instruments of short and long-term political power. What's striking, though, amidst all of these political maneuverings is how little Tyrion is influencing here. In fact, I would argue that he's influenced exactly nothing. Yeah, right? That's the overall takeaway in terms of Tyrion's arc. That in the last book, Tyrion would have been at the center of this game. I mean, remember, he's the one who proposed the Tyrell marriage alliance in the first place. But now he's back on the outside, looking in. He learns about all this after the fact, because Tywin has stopped including him. It doesn't matter if Tyrion has the drop on Varys, because Varys doesn't work for Tyrion anymore. Authority rests once more with Big Daddy Tywin. As Tyrion thinks, Pycelle was always a Lannister toady, and Boros Blount back on the Kingsguard will be personally loyal to Tywin now. If only Tyrion could count on the Kingsguard's loyalty like that, but now one tried to kill him. Varys assumes Tyrion is here about that, about Mand and more, which follows up on Tyrion's paranoia about the assassination attempt in his last chapter. But Tyrion is actually here about Shay, which changes the context of this meeting. Tyrion isn't even trying to reclaim his power. He's arranging a booty call. As he admits, meeting up with Shay is a dumbass move. He's no longer acting like a cunning politician, but like a jilted lover. He knows he should send her away, but he wants to have her all to himself one last time. Because he can't stand seeing her in public, watching her interact with other men, taller men, more handsome men. 
I think this is partially a metaphor for how Tyrion feels now that he's no longer the Hand of the King. Shay stands in for the power he now lacks. He can't access. He just has to watch it from afar. After all, Tyrion can't see Shay because he's being watched by the enemies he made in the last book. Janos Slint's sons would happily get him in trouble, as would Littlefinger, who has spies in half the brothels in town. So Tyrion is partially reaping what he sowed. These people couldn't touch you as the hand of the king. Now they smell your blood, and they're moving in like sharks. But Tyrion is also being spied on by people he thought were working for him, like the Kettleblack brothers. Tyrion gets all pissy about how much he paid them, but what did he expect? They sold Cersei out to him without a second thought. Why would they be more loyal to Tyrion, especially when Tyrion's money and Cersei's money both come from Tywin? Like Bronn, the Kettleblacks have also achieved the social advancement of knighthood, so they don't, they don't need to rely on Tyrion quite as much. Moreover, as Varys points out, Cersei has a tool that Tyrion lacks, sex. Not that she's fucking the Kettleblacks, she's teasing them in order to keep them on the hook. And what's interesting is that's the same reason Tyrion is so miserable in this chapter. He wants to get rid of all this tension by having sex, and he hasn't been able to. Sex, you could say, robs Tyrion of power, because it's the thing he wants so much that he will undercut his position to get it. And that's guaranteed by how his family works. Tyrion's first reaction to the news that Cersei is seducing the Kettleblacks is to think, ah, how can I arrange for Tywin to catch her in bed with one of them? That's how bad things are in House Lannister. No respect, no love. Just everyone crossing each other's borders to use their personal lives as political ammo. I mean, that's why Varys reminds Tyrion of his family. The punchline of all of this is that Varys also is spying on Tyrion for Tywin. But the spider already knows enough to get Shay killed, and ironically, that kind of makes him the only one Tyrion thinks he can trust, because the damage is done. So naturally, Tyrion wants to bring Shay here, to Varys' quarters. He doesn't have access to Magor's tunnels anymore. This is his last resort. And you can really feel the walls closing in at this point, almost literally. Tyrion is barely staying one step ahead of his dad, and now his lover's den is an empty cell. The interesting question for me about all this, I understand Tyrion's rationale at one level, but why is Varys going through with aiding Tyrion here? Because Varys, when Tyrion first broaches the subject of Shay, says, yeah, this is a really dumb move on your part, bro. But then he allows Tyrion to use his own bed for one last final tryst? Why, exactly? Now, one argument is that Varys thinks that Tyrion is actually going to go through with breaking up Shay and sending her away. In this scenario, you know, maybe Varys is acting in friendship towards Tyrion, doing his friend a kindness. Tyrion, after all, back in A Clash of Kings, considered Varys as perhaps the best friend he had in King's Landing. Moreover, Varys ostensibly detests the suffering of innocence, as he says to Ned Stark in Ned's final chapter in A Game of Thrones, and maybe he thinks that Tyrion breaking off with Shay would probably save her life. But that Tyrion felt like Varys was his best friend in King's Landing was only one half of the quote. The other half of the quote had Tyrion telling Varys that sometimes he felt like Varys was his worst enemy. As Varys will later tell Tyrion after Shay is hired on as one of Sansa's maids, he would totally tell Cersei the truth about Shay if Cersei asked him. So the more cynical reading here is that Varys is storing blackmail on Tyrion using his friendship with Tyrion as ammunition for future plots. And as we learn from A Dance of Dragons, we all know what Varys' long-term plot is, seeding Aegon Youngrift onto the Iron Throne. Now, it's not completely clear here if Varys was planning to have Tyrion join up with Aegon at this point in the story, but I will make the argument that that might be the case, that Varys was sowing the seeds for Tyrion and Tywin's break at the very least here. 
because by demonstrating friendship to Tyrion at the expense of Tyrion and Tywin's relationship, Varys further divides the Lannister father and son. Ultimately, though, I think Varys's idea here is to keep a number of arrows in his quiver to disrupt the Lannister hold on power prior to Aegon's arrival. Shay, like Varys's little birds, is one arrow in Varys's quiver to disrupt the power structure in Westeros. Only, of course, to replace it with the same exact power structure, just with a different face in the form of young Grift. So Tyrion has set up his romantic date with Shay, but nothing about getting ready for it makes him feel romantic. He dresses nicely at first, only to realize that that's going to make all those spies very suspicious, because he's supposed to be visiting Varys, and who dresses up for Varys? Tyrion has to tear his nice clothes off, just like Theon did before meeting with Asha at Winterfell in the last book. Both men project confidence, but are really very insecure. Tyrion's ego has been shaken, first by losing power, and then, as I said, by seeing Shay out in public, talking to other men. It doesn't matter how I dress, he thinks, my body will never look the part. And so, I'll never be good enough. You know who does look the part is Loras Tyrell. Tyrion thinks bitterly about how Loras is already a legend. The boys want to be him, the girls want to fuck him. He's the image of masculinity that Tyrion can't live up to. But we already saw in Sansa's first chapter in the book that Loras is actually alienated and angry right now. We see it again here, when Tyrion talks to Loras on his way back to Varys' rooms. It's a mirror image of the conversation between Jaime and Brienne in the previous chapter. Jaime compared Brienne to Tyrion, and now here's Tyrion asking Loras the same question Brienne asks Jaime. Why join the Kingsguard at all? Loras says that, well, why not? I'm a third son. I'm not required to wed and breed. This seemed natural enough. That's a dodge, as much as Jaime's saying he joined the Kingsguard for glory. In both cases, they really put on the cloak for love. But while Jaime joined the Kingsguard to be with Cersei, the one he loved, Loras took the white cloak because the one he loved, Renly, is already dead. That's such a good point. And I was totally going to make the same point and point out what you were saying you were saying about how this Tyrion chapter occurs right after Jamie's chapter and the similar types of language and the similar discussions being had here. But of course, he pointed out first, I am also very, very smart. <laughs> there is a real sadness to Loras' declaration that he's only 17 years old to Tyrion. It reminds me of what Barristan told Daenerys back in her first chapter about Rhaegar's statement that he needed to become a knight. These kids, Loras, Jaime, Rhaegar, they're all making decisions with lifelong consequences when they're still only children or teenagers. What's even more fascinating, though, is that Tyrion is only looking at the exterior of the boy and seeing the public face, rather than the private, true self of Loras Tyrell. While George has said that the Tyrell family, Olena Tyrell in particular, is aware of Loras' homosexuality, that knowledge is not widespread throughout much of the rest of Westeros. Really, the only person to really allude to it is Jamie when he crassly and homophobically alludes to Loras' sexual orientation when they meet up later in A Storm of Swords. Tyrion for all his intelligence, Cersei for not her intelligence, they don't seem to really know. And I think this is a spot where Tyrion's intelligence is kind of surface level only and rather interiorly focused, using himself as the vantage point for how the world works. To Tyrion, it's tragic that an evil-bodied, attractive man has dedicated himself to the King's Guard rather than to women and birthing children and starting a family. That, I think, reflects on Tyrion because throughout this chapter and really throughout the rest of his out-of-power arc, Tyrion really self-loathes himself for his physical deformities, and he's constantly calling attention to the physical prowess of everyone else around him. But it's done so in a really surface-level way. 
And this, Tyrion kind of resembles Cersei in how Cersei's primary concern is for the external appearance of people and herself rather than the character within. I think this is a real character flaw in Tyrion, and Cersei, obviously, making him kind of incel-like. You have what I don't have, so you're going to get all the girls and all the love that I totally deserve too, right? That's not a healthy way of living. But of course, it's all bound together in how Tyrion has been treated his entire, li his entire life, especially by a dad who despises Tyrion for his deformities and who constantly reminds Tyrion of the ways that he is coming up short, literally and figuratively, to Tywin. Yeah, Tywin himself, although of course he's he's past his youthful prime, still has that that very straight belly that George always describes in the stern face and the broad shoulders. He looks the part that Tyrion doesn't have. And Tyrion, I think, understandably but inaccurately assumes that anyone who looks the part must not have any problems because they're able to live up to the image that he's not. But we've already seen that's not true with Jamie. And, uh, you know, Loris is basically a young Jamie, as Jamie will think to himself later in Storm of Swords. Oh, I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to the person I was when I was a teenager. And it's it's not all just uh, sunshine and flowers for Loris. And George reminds us of that by having Tyrion think about Loris's rainbow cloak, how much better he looked in it than the white one. That rainbow represented Loris's love for Renly, bright colors to match his passion. Now all the color has faded, like the corpses Tyrion saw in his fever dream after the battle. And Loras is left alone in white, like a blank slate, like a ghost. The meaning went out of life with Renly, as far as Loras is concerned. Why would he bother looking for love after that? As he says, when the sun has set, no candle can replace it. And this is one of my favorite lines in the series. It's a pitch-perfect summary of sorrow. Renly was surrounded by sun imagery, and when he was killed by his brother's shadow, all the candles in the tent went out with him. Loras now lives in a twilight world, and any source of light would only be a cheap imitation of his fallen star. To fall in love again, he thinks, would be insulting to Renly's memory, it, like it, did, it would be like it didn't matter. So instead, he devotes himself to duty, the death of love. The Knight of Flowers is the very image of chivalry, but he's only here to work through his grief. He's only here because it's not so easy. When Renly died, I pointed out the parallel to the Long Night. You have this Sun King figure, and then he feels cold, and then everything is plunged into darkness. The same applies here. When nuclear winter arrives to blot out the sun, will Azor Ahai and Lightbringer, his candle, really be able to replace it? Melisandre certainly thinks so. She tells Davos later in the book, It is night in your seven kingdoms now, but soon the sun will rise again. The war continues, and some will soon learn that even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze. So very similar imagery. Melisandre thinks of Stannis as this candle in the darkness who will be enough to give light back to the whole world, who will resurrect the sun. But of course Melisandre thinks that. She killed Renly. She has to believe that it was worth it, that the candle of duty can replace the son of love. Sir Mandon Moore lived only for his duty, Barristan once said. Varys notes that it didn't seem like a compliment. Well, why not? Isn't that the point of the Kingsguard? In theory, the Kingsguard are supposed to sacrifice themselves, body and soul. In theory, this is admirable. But in practice, it's off-putting. People are social creatures with their own fears and desires, and we're drawn to each other's individual personalities. You see this theme at work across a storm of sorts. Mance leaves the watch so he could wear any cloak he chose. Jamie insists that he's Jamie, not just the King's Clare. There's more to him than what he did with that cloak. Barristan himself has to face down the quote-unquote discipline of the Unsullied, who are kind of like this exaggerated, nightmarish version of institutions like the King's Guard and the Night's Watch. The overall point, I think, is clear. 
for a man to become a zombie is a terrible fate. There's the Charlie Chaplin's famous speech from the movie The Great Dictator, where he's playing a Hitler figure throughout and then drops the character and breaks the fourth wall and speaks to the audience directly about what was happening in the world at that time. And he says, Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. Tywin has always denied Tyrion's humanity, his heart, in part because that makes it easier to deny his own, especially after Joanna died birthing Tyrion. So Loris's lament about the sun and the candle links the mythological imagery to the personal story. It's about Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, like I was saying, but it's also about Renly, Joanna, Taisha, everyone who has been loved and lost. Tyrion has arranged this whole rendezvous with Shay to preserve something against his father's purge, to avoid becoming like Varys or Loras. But Tyrion also mocks Loras's romantic sentiment. When the sun has set, no candle can replace it. Did you get that from a song? Ah, typical teenager shit. Your head's in the clouds. Tyrion's cynicism prevents him from falling in love again because of what happened when he was a moonstruck teenager. Tywin took it all away, as he threatens to again. You know, we don't see Tyrion directly react in this chapter to Tywin's brutal dressing down from his last chapter. Maybe it's too painful to think about directly. Instead, Tyrion reacts by hiding, hiding himself away with Shay. He tells himself that it's time to send her away for her own safety. Tywin threatened her life after all, but he can't bring himself to do it. She's the only sweet part of his life. Here in this empty cell with her is the only place he can avoid the stairs. Deep down, Tyrion still wants to love and be loved. He can't help himself, even as part of him tells himself, ah, you're just repeating Taisha all over again. And Shay is playing a role, like anyone else. When Tyrion comes back in, he sees Varys in disguise as a woman, and thinks he's lawless at first. And there is an interesting undercurrent of conflict over gender roles in this chapter. Varys as a eunuch isn't seen as a proper man. Loras is, despite being gay, because he can perform heterosexuality more easily than Varus. And anyway, Varus's role calls for disguises like this. Tyrion does have straight sex, but only in private. Shay wants to make it public. She wants to be his lady. She wants to be part of the system. Tyrion is willing to overlook all the signs that Shay is out primarily for advancement. And to be clear, you know, why wouldn't she be? What does she owe him? Shea keeps angling for a place at his side, wearing nice clothes, climbing the ladder like Braun in the Kettleblacks because that'll provide security for her. And so she wants to be invited to Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding, which is the ultimate public performance of heterosexuality as political power, which is the thing everyone is trying to access in this chapter, but can't <laughs> quite do it. The interesting thing is that this is actually what Tyrion wants too, what he thinks he wants in this chapter, but also what he wants deeply in his subconscious. Remember that dream that Tyrion had back at the end of A Clash of Kings when he dreamed of the feast and the honors he received from his family? Shay makes a cameo at the end of that dream. Shay was waiting to embrace him. She took him by the hand, laughing and teasing, calling him her giant of Lannister. So I think in his heart, Tyrion wants to embrace Shay as his lady of Lannister or his paramour, to be loved by Shay as his lady love rather than his paid girlfriend. It's actually really fucking tragic that the thing that both Tyrion and Shay want is almost identical, but they can't get it. Of course, the reasons that they want these things are different, obviously. Tyrion wants to be deeply loved by the people around him, honored for the things he did to save King's Landing from Stannis. Shay, well, like you said, she's looking to climb the social ladder to keep doing better for herself and for her own long-term security. 
where once Shay was a sex worker slash camp follower who fortune allowed her to be at the Green Fork and who happened to catch the eye of Bronn at just the right time, she's kind of moving up in the world and never let to let an opportunity go to waste. Shay has climbed higher in service to Tyrion, or she did until the Bride in King's Landing. The sense I get from Shay in this chapter is that she feels that her service to Lollys is a major step down from the manse near the Iron Gate that she once lived in. There she had servants, guards, and a singer. Now she's waiting on Lolly Stokeworth, a girl that she loathes. It's undeniably ugly how Shay mocks Lollys for being stupid to Tyrion for the girl's fear of large gatherings of people due to the rape that Lollys experienced at the riot. It's also kind of in keeping with how 18-year-old people are. What I'm saying is that Shay kind <laughs> of resembles a bro playing Halo 2 in a college dorm, saying terrible things <laughs> over the mic, something I never, ever did. Because she's 18 or so with a lot of strong feelings about things, but not a lot of maturity or direction or ways to channel those strong feelings. For Shay, this ugliness stands in for the simmering anger that Shay herself feels at being brought down a rung on the social ladder. Really, Shay and Tyrion kind of mirror each other in this chapter. Her dream, really her, her fantasy, was to rise high by entering Tyrion's service as his lady wife. And that would be a major promotion for Shay, allowing her to rise as one of the greatest ladies in all of Westeros. Tyrion, though, can't accommodate Shay's request because of what Tywin threatened. Tywin will hang the next whore he finds in Tyrion's bed. But even if Shay wasn't a sex worker, I'm not so sure that Tywin wouldn't hurt her terribly in some way had she somehow succeeded in her plan to become Tyrion's lady. There's something interesting that Shay asked for the jewels and silks that Tyrion promised her. As we're going to learn later from Kevin Lannister, Titus Lannister's mistress paraded around Lannisport wearing the jewels and silks of Tywin's mom after she died. That kind of resembles Shay here. Shay would wear the jewels and silks Tyrion promised her and act as Lady Lannister. But Tywin would never allow a common one to look high-born to wear Lannister colors. Openly, anyways. Lannister pride dictates that only the most well-born people earn the Lannister surname to flaunt their societal status to wear the silks and jewels and velvets and red velvets of the Lannisters. But Shay was a common woman. She's fit for the bedchamber only to be hidden away as Tyrion is doing here, as Tywin will do at the end of A Storm of Swords. Flaunch a roll, rise above your station, and Tywin will march you naked through the streets and brutally press you down. But remember your role, stay in your lane, stay behind closed doors, and hell, Shay, you can wear the chain of the hand of the king. Yep, you just can't be in public at events like Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding. That's the kind of event the singers sing about, including Simon Silvertongue, Shay's personal singer. As with Cersei and Jaime in the last chapter, we're seeing how the realities of both power and sex undercut the pretenses of chivalric romance. Cersei used sex to convince Jaime to give up material wealth for her. Shay uses sex to try and convince Tyrion to give her material wealth. Shay can't even innocently enjoy the attentions of a singer, because her very presence in this city puts her in danger. Again, everyone in King's Landing is a potential spy. That's how it works around here. Even here and now, Tyrion can't help himself but check for Varys' secret tunnels. He can't just be in bliss with his lady and forget about the rest of the world. The realities of power keep gnawing at him. He's got to find the angle. And speaking of secret tunnels, Bronn is visiting Shatayas now. And that really pisses Tyrion off, which reveals where his head is at. As he admits to himself, it's not like he ever actually slept with Alayaya, but Bronn doesn't know that, so Tyrion processes this as a personal betrayal. And that's this chapter in a nutshell. Losing power, losing love, losing sex, and feeling like those are all one big ball of humiliation. Tyrion is seriously tempted to have Bronn kill Simon to save face. He pulls back only 
because he feels like ah, Shay should get something nice out of this. She should get to enjoy innocent songs. He's trying to preserve that dream for a little while. Tyrion in this chapter has been reduced to chasing his own tail, while his father reverses all his decisions. We're starting to see serious anger simmer under the surface with no clear outlet. By the end of the book, it will erupt in the form of a crossbow bolt to the source of Tyrion's misery and the source of his existence, Dad's cock and balls. That is so well said, man. Always, always saying these amazing things to kind of close out the depth portion of this episode. And, and, but, I, but I do think it's hilarious how like Tyrion is like, ah, look at how moral I am. I didn't order Bronn to murder someone. I only want him to question him kind of thing. Like, oh, Tyrion, wow, you're so moral. Amazing, my friend. Amazing. I think, though, that demonstrates something about Tyrion and that he's feeling increasingly embittered by his experiences trying to navigate this brand new world the one that he thinks has changed while he was asleep. What's interesting about Tyrion's anger is that it's not as though he's upset about his policies being reversed for ideological reasons. Sure, he's angry about the mountain clansmen being turned away by King's Landing. He's upset over what happened to Shataya. He's pissed that Pycelle is being restored to his office. But ultimately, the source of his anger is that he's disempowered. Tyrion doesn't have any power that makes him really fucking mad. Like we talked all about during A Clash of Kings... Tyrion fails to uphold his promise to do justice in King's Landing, save for a few rare times. Instead, again, as we talked about, ad nauseum, stop talking about after this, Tyrion bolstered an illegitimate, immoral regime in the form of Joffrey and Cersei, all while supporting his dad committing war crimes in the Riverlands. It's kind of easy to get lost in Tyrion's headspace because he is such a dynamic point of view character. But he's not upset about injustice being done or that his few just policies are being reversed. He's upset that he's not the one in power, a power that he sees as a substitute for the love he'd ever received from his family. And so from here on out, Tyrion's world becomes small. He focuses on pretty small threats like Simon Silvertongue, and he's dispatched to tasks that he believes are beneath him, like becoming the master of coin. Furthermore, Tyrion becomes a pawn to Tywin's schemes more and more, a puppet of his dad. And that his dad will betray Tyrion in the most humiliating way possible after using him as a pawn and a puppet by sleeping with his girlfriend, it really makes Tyrion all the more angry and makes him break. So yeah, this chapter is a large direction sign to a crossbow bolt to Tywin's dick, and of course to Tywin not shitting gold. And speaking of gold, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, Tyrion wonders in this chapter if he should get a gold nose to replace the one Mandon Moore cut off, but of course it's Jamie who will get a gold hand after his original hand is cut off a few chapters from now. Something that Shiloh said when she came on to the podcast to do Jamie's first chapter in this book is that Tyrion and Jamie's stories in this book kind of feed off each other in interesting ways. That's something I'm noticing more, and that's a big example of it. Yeah, like we were saying last week for for Tyrion's uh, for for Jamie's second chapter, that that chapter has a lot of foreshadowing for events that Tyrion is going to do later in Storm of Swords, and Jamie's and and Tyrion's chapters have a lot of foreshadowing for what's going to happen in Jamie's later stories as well. So I do think that is an interesting way that George does foreshadowing and groundwork. Those two Lannister siblings, potential siblings, half siblings, anyways, are really interconnected, and I do think that the fact that they're a lot of the work within their chapters lays groundwork for later revelations in their story, it does show how interconnected that they are and how, you know, I think there's going to be some ultimate denouement in their relationship. So Varys uh, hints in this chapter, of course, that Cersei is seducing specifically Osmond Kettleblack, the Kettleblack on the Kingsguard. 
but the, the Kettleback Brothers she actually ends up sleeping with in A Feast for Crows is Osney instead of Osmond. So it's kind of funny to me that the Kettleblacks kind of competing and swaggering with each other for attention. <laughs> but then, of course, Osney immediately suffers for it when, you know, Cersei sleeps with him because he agrees to uh, go go to the High Sparrow and confess his sins. But then the High Sparrow whips the back off him. So uh, uh, Kettleblacks really should have gotten out of power while they could. I mean, like, do you think like the two, like the Kettleback brothers are like sitting there like after it's being like, hey, how close did you get to sleeping with Cersei today? Well, I, <laughs> I got a tip pretty much against my, against my arm. Like, <laughs> Ooh, Osmond. Wow. And Ozzy's like, huh, I actually fucked the queen. And everybody's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. So, I just <laughs> that's, watched. That's uh, probably about right. Yeah. I just watched 2122 Jump Street and I'm just, uh, <laughs> just caught up in the kind of bro humor um, type stuff there. I could just imagine Osmond, Osney. And the other kettle black all just being like, "Oh, how close did you get, bro? How close did you get?" And then like, all the all, ultimately the competition leads to leads to some bad consequences for the kettle black, as we'll find out in a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. So in this chapter, Shay asks for her jewels and silks here, which we find out in Cersei's first a feast for crows chapter is something that Shay asked for right before Tyrion's trial by combat. In fact, the night before Tyrion's trial by combat, when she asked for her jewels back. Unfortunately, Shay is asking Cersei. And Cersei refuses her, and also refuses to honor the other promises that she made to Shay, and she will not release that those jewels to Shay until Shay reveals the location of Sansa Stark, because obviously Shay and Sansa are in cahoots about Sansa's escape, which they're not, of course. Yeah, Shay keeps trying to find a Lannister who will honor the promises, but unfortunately they kind of all work that way. Uh, they use her when they need her, and then as soon as she's not useful, uh, then the claws start to come out. Tyrion tells Bronn to find Simon rather than kill him, in the, at the end of this chapter, it's not going to take more than just two more chapters before Tyrion tells Bronn, no, actually, go kill that motherfucker. That guy is going to be singing unless we permanently silence him. So, yeah, Simon, not long for this world. Yep, Tyrion uh, just barely pulls back here, but then uh, Simon pisses him off by asking to be at the wedding and threatening to go public with Tyrion and Shay's relationship otherwise. And that that, that kind of uh, personal insult is always just too much for Tyrion as it is for everyone else in the Lannisters. So at that point, Simon has uh, un- unwittingly signed his own death warrant. Yeah, not smart on Simon's part, but again, kind of monstrously murderous on, on Tyrion's part. It's 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 a brutal, bitter, evil cycle. So for our theory and discussion portion of this episode, there is something that's really interesting that we find out from Varys in this in this in this chapter. Namely that Varys has birds in the Citadel, spies there? Come on. Like that's it's something that we're we're kind of a little bit kind of is we find kind of shocking because it's not something that's brought up again in the narrative yet. But it is interesting that Varys has spies within the Citadel. So I was wondering, like, who is Varys' spy among the Archmaesters? We don't know of any tunnels in the Citadel. I've looked through the World Book and the Fire and Blood and the main novels, as in I searched the Search of Ice and Fire, but a search in the Search of Ice and Fire uh, archives to try and see if there are any tunnels associated with the Citadel. And there's none that we know of, at least yet. George can always invent them. So Varys' spy, if there are no tunnels, is likely someone who has not moving through the tunnels of the Red Keep, similar to the tunnels of the Red Keep. So the spy is probably one of the Archmaesters who was present during the the deliberations. As we find out from A Feast for Crows, and especially the Feast for Crows appendix, there are 21 current Archmaesters at the Citadel, half of them only netting a a single solitary mention in the Feast for Crows appendix. Of the ones who have more than appendix entry, we have the following. Archmaester Benedict, the one who says that the war of the five kings is a misnomer because Bradley was dead before Balin was crowned. Just classic 
academic bullshit. Oh my God. It's reminded me of so many college professors of my time. You got Archmaster Ebrus, who studies urine and is mentioned frequently in the world of ice and fire as a mentor to Yandel and assists Yandel in his studies, but this guy also doesn't like Pate. Also a character that appears in Game of Thrones Season 7. Archmaster Gallard, who wrote A History of the Summer Isles in Tall Trees Town. Archmaster Marwyn, who has done a lot of stuff and is currently en route to Daenerys Targaryen. Archmaster Molos, who says the world is only 5,000 years old. Archmaster Noran, the previous Seneschal of the Citadel. Archmaster Pariston, who studies the history of the Andals and teaches history generally at the Citadel. Archmaster Ryan, who doesn't have a Valyrian steel link. That's really the only thing we know about him. Archmaster Theobald, a gruff but good man who is the current Seneschal of the Citadel. Archmaster Vinegar Valen, acid-tongued and disliked by most of his students for the way that he kind of tongue-lashes them. And Archmaster Walgrave, an archmaster who likely has dementia and held the skeleton key that Pate stole on behalf of Jack and Hagar. So among that list of archmaesters who have more than just a name associated with them in A Song of Ice and Fire, there aren't many who stand out as potential spies for Varus. Really, there's only two candidates that, in my mind, just kind of spark, spark my mind. You got Valen, Vinegar Valen, with that A.E. name. Maybe that has some reference or connotation to the Targaryens or Blackfires and their lineage. But I think that's kind of unlikely. Really, in my mind, there's only one Archmaester who stands out among that group. And that is Archmaester Marwyn the Mage, who, of course, is one of the most interesting Maester characters in the story. Gets mentioned in A Game of Thrones and again in A Storm of Swords in later Jamie chapters. And shows up in Samuel's final chapter in A Feast for Crows and takes off immediately for Daenerys Targaryen. So I'm curious, sir, do you think that Marwyn the Mage is Varys' spy in the Citadel? I think that's probably the most likely choice. As you say, it seems less likely that he's got a spy in the walls at Old Town and more likely that he's got someone on in the Conclave on his side. Marwyn is kind of an outsider, an outcast among the Arch- Archmaesters. He does a lot of stuff that pisses them off, so this would just be one more on the list. We know Marwyn has kind of been everywhere and talked to everyone. That's the reputation we learn about in the prologue to A Feast for Crows. So, you know, he's not isolated in Old Town. He has contacts elsewhere, he has contacts elsewhere spies and sailors and whatnot. So it wouldn't take too much for his uh, web to overlap with Varus's. Varus is even mentioned in the prologue to A Feast for Crows when one of the acolytes were focused on there, Melander is drinking and holds up a toast to our rightful queen, Daenerys Targaryen, and one of the other acolytes says, uh, be quiet, you fool, Varus, the, the spider has spies everywhere. Just to keep that in mind, that Varus might have uh, ears listening in Old Town as well. And there's just something, you know, personality-wise about Marwyn as this kind of uh, uh, roguish figure within the government that no one really respects, but everyone has to kind of deal with for how skilled they are. It kind of makes sense that, that he would... Uh, he would have his 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 parallel in in, in Varus. Marwyn is going to end up on uh, Daenerys' side of things. Maybe they'll end up playing kind of parallel puppet master roles. You'll have Varus with Young Griff, and on the other side, Marwyn with Danny. As as uh, problems heat up between the two two Targaryens, that we could definitely see their intellects uh, come into conflict, even if they've been on the same side before. Yeah, I am so ex- excited about seeing what Marwyn's going to get up to in the Winds of Winter. And of course, I think Marwyn the Mage is going to interact with Tyrion Lannister since Tyrion Lannister is also in Marine and Marwyn is in Routh. So we will see how that relationship plays out in the future. But I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Tyrion 2. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. 
You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is brendabfish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quantum, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Cabothian Frozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for supporting us. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Aria 1, 2, and 3. Yes, we have not forgot about Arya Stark, folks. We've got a lot of comments about that. Yes, we are coming back to Arya Stark, in which a walk through the woods for Arya ends with meeting the Brotherhood Without Banners, also an unexpected reunion at a familiar inn, and an escape attempt. There's a lot of action that's going on in these Arya chapters, isn't there? Just like in Clash of Kings, folks, we're putting Arya's first few chapters together because while there's great stuff in there, each chapter on their own doesn't have quite enough material to make a worthwhile episode. So putting them together, I think we'll have a, a real great episode. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Arya 1, 2, and 3.